Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 271 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world and share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by cocktail author and historian Amanda Schuster. She joined us many, many moons ago to chat about her book, New York Cocktails, and now she's back with a stunning new project that takes a more global lens. Her latest work, Signature Cocktails, explores the people, places, and ingredients responsible for some of the most iconic drinks of all time. And we're about to dig into all of that in this episode. But first, let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Commodore cocktail. To make it, you'll need one and a half ounces or 45 mLs bourbon, one half ounce or 15 mLs lime juice, one half ounce or 15 mLs gum syrup or simple syrup, and one ounce or 30 mLs of black strap rum. The big one on the market is Gosling's, but there are, of course, other options. Combine all ingredients except the rum in a cocktail shaker with ice. Give them a good hard shake until everything is well chilled and properly diluted. Then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, top up with that generous one ounce float of blackstrap rum, and enjoy. Conceived around the year 1899 by a bartender named Philip O. Gross at the Honing Hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio, this signature cocktail is named in honor of Commodore George Dewey, then commander of the U.S. Navy and hero of the Spanish-American War in the Philippines, although I'm not sure that's how Filipinos would put it. And according to the entry for this drink in Amanda's book, this cocktail beat out 9,000 other applicants in a nationwide contest. Originally, the formulation contained orange curacao, a very popular 19th century ingredient, and involved an olive garnish, but subsequent recapitulations of the drink varied widely. Essentially, you need some kind of whiskey, some lime, and some sweetener. Generally, there was a nod to orange, although that could come in the form of orange bitters, and generally there was some sort of rum dashed or floated at the end. What strikes me most about the Commodore cocktail is that it's a deliberate play at fusion during a time in American history when our imperialism was at or approaching its height. Sure, bourbon is as domestic as it gets, but all the other ingredients in the drink come to us courtesy of a complex web of trade and diplomatic relations that span the globe. Fitting, then, that it should bear the name of a naval hero who, for better or worse, bent those imperial forces to his will. So, now that you've got another signature cocktail to add to your arsenal, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this time-traveling, globe-trotting conversation with Amanda Schuster, author of Signature Cocktails, some of the topics we discuss include how Amanda went about sourcing 200 signature recipes from all corners of the globe and spanning over 500 years of history. What distinguishes signature cocktails from their more generic counterparts like Old Fashions, Manhattans, and Martinis, specifically the roles of people, places, and events? An examination of certain important historical trends from milk punches to private clubs to luxury travel, 
all of which yielded cohorts of era-defining signature cocktails we still enjoy today. The importance of menu attribution in spreading contemporary signature cocktail recipes across the digital and physical world, and tips for designing a signature cocktail for your own bar or home cocktail lounge. Along the way, we explore the bedeviling properties of chocolate and gin, when a margarita isn't a margarita, how to defeat an invading army by spiking the drinking well with whiskey, and much, much more. Amanda's new book, Signature Cocktails, is available now wherever books are sold, and I know I've said it before, but the following point bears repeating. My inbox is literally deluged with pitches from literary agents several times a year in the months before most publishers release new products, and I only bring on authors who are truly world-class thinkers and communicators and who are contributing something actually meaningful to the drinks world. I get measurably upset when I think about the boring recipe books that assume people can't make a decent old-fashioned in 2023, so thank goodness for people like Amanda and her panel of international cocktail experts who have assembled this collection of the world's most noteworthy signature cocktails, many of which I bet you've never heard of. Please enjoy my conversation with Amanda. Amanda, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So for those listeners, probably the majority of our listeners who weren't with me, hundreds, literally hundreds of episodes when we talked about New York Cocktails, your other mm -hmm. big hit publication, uh, could you just sort of reacquaint yourself uh, with our audience? Who are you and what do you do? Um, well, thanks for having me, Eric. I'm Amanda Schuster. I am a wine, spirits, and cocktail writer based in New York City and the author of as Eric mentioned, uh, New York cocktails. I've also written uh, Drink Like a Local New York. And just today, we have published uh, Signature Cocktails on Fiden. Yes, good timing all around. So I'm excited to talk about this book. Um, Which is what? right here. Yeah, oh yeah, let's yes, show it for the fans. See, Beautiful. Hence, hence the red and black and gold. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love the, I love minimalists uh cocktail exteriors that then like this one sort of to me like an oyster when you crack it open you get all this beautiful photography right oh that's a nice thing to say thank you <laughs> um so let's jump in at a really weird point let's talk about let's talk about that photography how long did it take you to photograph all of these cocktails in this book well i didn't photograph them myself sure. um but i was kind of astounded when Biden told me that they were planning on photographing every single one of the 200 cocktails and so this was actually done in london so the, the book was actually went through there are there are two offices with Biden. they have new york and they have london and al almost all of the process went through london so and, and it was a little bit of a nail biter, but we but we got it. You know, there, we had to do a few do overs, but but really, it, it ended up looking amazing, didn't it? And um, and it's a photographer named Andy Sewell, who works in a London studio there. And I don't really know what the process was exactly. I would I would guess. I mean, I know that they had to make each cocktail and obviously photograph it, but. I kind of wish I'd been there to see what was going on because it was so exciting. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a beautiful. I would would you call this sort of a reference work? How how would you define what this book is and does? It's it's a multitasker, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it it's it's reference, it's history, of course, it's culinary in certain ways. Mm. It's 
it's a little bit, you know, I mean, it's definitely telling a story. I mean, one of the things that was so important to me about doing about writing this book and and you know traveling a bit outside of my realm in New York City was the chance to put something that's brand spanking new from the contemporary scene up against something that would be quite old and you can see this and I love that this was this was not discussed until the end but I'm so glad they did it this way how the book is laid out chronologically right so you start with the earliest cocktail and end with the newest one and I think this is a really cool way to see how cocktails evolved and what people were drinking through the decades and and maybe to understand why, you know, they were using those ingredients and um and why they were styled a certain way or why why they were prepared a certain way. Yeah, I am really excited to dig into this because we can sort of slice and dice this a couple of different ways and I'm sure that slicing and dicing is what led to a lot of the granularity, right? What happens when you dice an onion, right? You create right. The, the the vertical dices, then you turn it and you start going and suddenly it's a lot more complicated than it was when it was just sitting in your hand in one piece. So I'm excited to get into that slicing and dicing. Um, but I, let's talk a little bit about that zoom out first, right? You were, I mean, the titles of your books should be a hint to some people, right? New York centric, which yeah. in your defense is where a lot of cocktails occur and the New York London connection, another great, you know, cocktail duo, right? What two places on earth, if you could pick two to go out and drink cocktails, probably London and New York are two of your best. Uh, but you know, like what made you, I guess, excited or what prompted you to take a bit more of a global lens with this project? And, and what did that look like for you personally in terms of like, whoa, suddenly the aperture is a is drastically wider than it used to be? Yeah, that was daunting at first. Um, but I was excited to do it because there really are some super cool things that are happening outside of New York City and London, right? And, you know, they're creative, especially um, in the past few years as, as um, mixology has really kind of taken over the globe. You might not have thought, for example, of Dubai as a center of cocktail culture, but it very much is, even though it's, you know, it's an Arab country, but it's, it's a very cosmopolitan one. So they have restaurants and they have bars. And so it was important to me, for example, to include something from there or Beirut, Lebanon, or obviously there's a huge scene going on in Mexico City right now. And I have a feeling that in a few years, we're going to be talking about Mexico City very much in the same way that we're going to be discussing New York and, and London and also Paris. There's a lot going on. So it was important. It was important for me to, to cover those things. And I had consultants. I had six consultants working on the book. So in based in London and covering a lot of Europe, but also uh, Cuban cocktails was Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller. And we had uh, Emma Jansen, who who helped out with Latin American cocktails and Vivian Pei, who helped out with Asian cocktails and Camper English, who did West Coast and and some of the more, you know, like middle of the century kind of history. And then Robert Simonson in the um, in the Midwest. And then, you know, but there were still a lot of blanks to fill. And, and all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute. Australia, who's doing Australia? How do we get Australia? Or how do we get New Zealand? How do we, you know, so it was, it was a lot to cover. Sure, sure. Um, well, 
I I think when I first cracked open the sample copy that was provided to me, the surprise of it really was, as you mentioned, something that came late in the game, that decision to go chronologically. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess, can you talk about... I guess the year 1475 like that to me, to me, that's pre-cocktail and, and maybe, yes. maybe your answer is like fair, but again, so like, can you give us the, I guess the decision that kicked us off in 1475 rather than, you know, why was that the starting point? And as opposed to something that was earlier or something that was later, and mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about that drink too. It's a fantastic question. Here's the thing. So the definition of cocktail didn't really come to being as as you're probably hinting at until the early 1800s. And so is something a cocktail before then? Well, just because they weren't using that word doesn't mean that it wasn't. And so you have a mixed drink with alcohol. You've It's got more than three ingredients. To me, that's a cocktail. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, and like, at that time, I mean, 1475, that comes, it, history may not be my best subject, but that predates 1492. Um, the cocktail is also, you know, as some of our colleagues might tell us, an American invention. Uh, where did this 1475 drink arise? And, you know, is, is there any any story with that? It's pretty hilarious. So... I mean, and the whole thing is 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 based on legend. You know, did this even really happen? And it was interesting to include this in the book. I mean, the reason they wanted to include it in the book is because it's a drink that people do drink in Scotland um, around the time of uh, of the holidays, and it's basically a fancy oatmeal drink with scotch and honey. And legend has it that this mixture was poured into a well to thwart an attack. And the reason being, you know, they would, they would bring up the, what they thought was going to be water. And instead it was this delicious thing and everybody got drunk and passed out and then (laughs) weren't able to overthrow the enemy. Um, But (laughs) did that really happen? Who knows, but it's a nice story. And, and it is a drink that people do drink um, during the holidays. So I thought it'd be fun to include it. That's such an amazing tall tale, though, isn't it? Like the amount of whiskey and and honey and oats that you would have to throw down a well to to get an entire army inebriated. What, what is it called? The Atoll Bros. Very- so it's the Earl of Atoll who is credited with with thwarting this this rival. Um, I don't even know what you would call it. I, I I word this in the book, and I should look it up again. But yes, a um, a rival faction that was trying to overthrow a local, you know, lord, like a person who was in charge of that of that whole section of Ireland at the time. Mm, I see. I see. Yeah. Well, now that we've got an example on the table and now that mm-hmm. we've kind of nodded to the fact that maybe the definition of a cocktail is is not exactly how we should be looking at this if we're if you know for whether we're pointing to David Wondrich's famous definition or, or something else. Uh, what is a signature cocktail? Maybe that's the best question that we should start with. And, and what are the parameters 
that you use when you think of a signature cocktail versus something that might be more of a generic build or format? So a signature cocktail to me, and this this was very much, you know, obviously something we ruminated over as we were putting together this book, but it really had to be, has to be a drink that can be tied to a specific person, place, event, whole country, as is the case with the Pisco Sour, you know, something that can be tied to something else. And so unfortunately, some of my favorite drinks do not fall under this category like the Manhattan. We don't really know exactly who invented it. I mean, we have a pretty good idea, but we, we don't really know. And it wasn't, you know, specifically tied to a place, but we can talk about somebody's version of a Manhattan that very much is the signature of the bartender or the establishment, or, you know, I, I use this example a lot, the martini. Again, don't really know for sure, but we, a Duke's martini very much is a signature cocktail. They have a very specific presentation for it, or the Connaught martini with, you know, the choose your own adventure kind of bitters um, situation. And that's, that's really cool. And their method of doing that, that's so theatrical and, and so stunning. So mm. it really, it really is about that. It really is about something that that started somewhere, and, and the best version of it that you want is that one. I love that definition. I love the groundedness of it, right? Because what does that tell us? That tells us that there's another way of thinking of cocktails that is slightly different than perhaps what is touted in certain foundational books and nothing against the cocktail codex. It's a great way to, you know, zoom out and learn about the big brushstroke moves that can be made in the cocktail world, variations on a theme. It's a great way for people to get comfortable with cocktails. Yeah. But I think the groundedness of the definition that you just presented offers another opportunity, which is to delight in the details, which is to take a deep breath and dive deep down vertically as opposed to staying on the surface in the broad strokes, right? Yeah. And I think some of those, you know, the details of like, you know, even when those details become somewhat specious and we start thinking about, well, how deep was the average Scottish well and how much whiskey would it take? <laughs> you know, like, okay, even when it gets a little bit specious, that's somehow contributory as opposed to, sure. you know, uh, you know, conflicting, I suppose. Uh, so I love the groundedness of it. And I, I, I guess, is there any other, what I might call like side attributes or riders that come with that groundedness? Like, so if, a if a signature cocktail has to be tied to a person, a place or an event, um, However, however bigger or small that person, place, or event may be, are there any logical consequences of that when it comes to ingredients or service methods or any, anything like that? And, and maybe the answer is no, but I figured I'd just at least broach the question. I don't think so. I mean, it really depends on where you are and what you have access to and, and how it's made. So, you know, it. I mean, we have the... Um, what is it? The, the crystal, the Ramos crystal gin fizz in the book, you know, which is probably <laughs> one of the, one of the more out there cocktails in the book and, you know, a completely clear version of a Ramos that has these, you know, molecular little beads on the top of it. So. Sure. Sure. Um, 
I don't think that I, 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 again, I didn't read all 200 of the cocktails in the book. Where is that being served? I believe that's the Jigger and Pony one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So all the way from, you know, Scotsman with well, using the well as a mixing glass to using molecular mixology methods and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, spherification, all that stuff. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about access to ingredients because I think, I feel like that's probably a selective pressure that you encountered fairly often. Right. Um, so are there are there any cocktails that you that immediately spring to mind for you that are a perfect example of like this cocktail could only have arisen here and only have arisen in this context because of that access to ingredients and then perhaps you know spread by chance or because suddenly a technology opened up or the ingredients started moving in a certain way. Are there any examples of that that come readily to mind that, that, um, that you could point to the white Negroni. Hmm. Yeah. Say more. Yeah. I mean the white, the white Negroni happened because, um, uh, now I have to look this up again, (laughs) but it, but it's one of these things where, you know, these two people, they're visiting a town in France. And they were there for a specific reason and they got thirsty and they decided they wanted to make a Negroni. And then they thought, hey, we're in this specific town in France. Let's use all French things. And then they found Sue's. And so they started to, they decided to make a Negroni with gin and white vermouth and Sue's instead of the typical, you know, red drink that we all know. And they thought, huh, you know, let's, let's, um, let's make this a thing, except the problem was that you couldn't get Sue's for the longest time. Mm. Hey, everybody, this is Eric reporting from the future with the names of the gentlemen in question. The White Negroni was invented by Wayne Collins and Nick Blacknell, who were visiting the Bordeaux region of France in 2001. Wayne was there to compete in a cocktail competition, and Nick, who was the director of Plymouth Gin at the time, was there for a spirits expo. It was hot, they were staying at the same guest house, and the drink was born after the two visited a local liquor store. Now, back to my chat with Amanda. So, and, and it actually, that necessitated um, that product being imported into places like the United States and the UK when it hadn't been. I see. Now, weirdly, I remember, I don't know if it was from like Band of Brothers or like Saving Private Ryan or one of those World War II movies. And I, of course, I don't know if it was a, a, an apocryphal recreation, but I remember there being like a Sue's advert on the side of a building in one of those movies. So when, when in history, roughly decade-wise, did this white Negroni uh, discovery occur, just for my own edification? I believe it was the late 1990s, very early 2000s. Okay. I don't know why I'm blanking on on the two the two gents who who came up with it, but um, one of them sadly has passed uh, just in the past year or two. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was um, I, they were there they were there for a cocktail event, or they were there for for like a distributor sort of event. Interesting. And yeah, they were just kind of messing around, and this this is this is what happened, and then it became this drink that everybody wants. But for the longest time, people couldn't make it because they couldn't get the Sue's, mm. even though it was something that existed. It just wasn't imported. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so with 
I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm kind of thinking temporally right now because we're, mm-hmm. we're warping back and forth between 17 or 1475 and the late nineties. Uh, so you can, you can now understand why I sometimes forget some of the details. Cause it's like cramming for a test. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, maybe, maybe to, to put you less on the spot with names and dates, <laughs> um, if I might simply ask, are there any large scale trends that you noticed that that kind of that if you, we were to zoom out and take a, a bigger picture view of cocktail trends over this time, did you see any any specific movements from one thing to another? I mean, one one example that I can kind of point to that may give you a moment to think about it is obviously we see in the glassware world from the you know pre prohibition era drinks to. Mm-hmm. 40s, 50s, 60s, a dramatic increase in glassware size, which of course had some consequent, you know, implications on the types of drinks that were being created for the during those eras. So uh, any any other like trends like that, that you may have noticed as we move upward across the ages that were interesting, or maybe that you didn't expect? The thing that really kind of blew my mind recently is how popular a clarified milk punch has become in contemporary cocktail bars. It's something that is um, very arduous to make. You have to, you know, you have to, there's a whole process by which to, to, to make the clarified milk. It's whey, basically. So you have to separate the curds and whey, activate it with acid, you know, and collect it. And it takes hours and hours and hours, but you also have to make a lot of it at once. So this is something I think people have been doing actually, even though initially it's very tedious, um, it is, it makes things easier later because you have to have so much of it. They, it's a great way to make batched cocktails. So high volume cocktail bars, you know, in Latin America, especially, especially it seems, um, and parts of Europe are making a lot of different kinds of, of clarified milk punches. Interesting. I wouldn't have expected the Latin America detail. Do you think that's because they have access to a lot of really fun, fresh, uh, acidic juices down there that we might not see as readily up here? Sure, that's part of it. I think there's also... Um, a bigger movement there, the no waste movement, I think is much better, much bigger in Latin America than it is here. Um, there's quite a bit of it in Asia too. And it's a really great way to showcase a new product. If somebody, um, like there, there's one from a um, Vietnamese uh, distillery that's, that's making a clarified milk punch and they're doing it actually also as a zero waste initiative and um but they do it to showcase their gin interesting yeah no it's i I think milk punch as a way to showcase something is a little bit it's a little bit counterintuitive isn't it because you might initially think that whoa 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 would would i initially expect that throwing a bunch of milk and milk proteins and and all this other stuff onto something I'd like to showcase would be a a great way to showcase it. But actually, I think counterintuitively making it clear, taking away some of that, some of that, um, some of the distraction uh, visually is an Mm -hmm. interesting way to um, to kind of get in there and and to not just I mean, like, I, I think the other logical way to, you know, using the gin as an example would be like, oh, we'll throw it in a martini. It's like, well, of course. 
Of course, that's a great way to showcase it. But that only showcases it in relation to one other thing. Your vermouth and maybe your twist and maybe your bitters. Okay, like those are those are some very kind of wispy other things that you're comparing it to. But when you throw it in with some texture and some acid yeah. and some other stuff, suddenly then you see how it starts playing with other forces. So I'm really glad that you brought up Milk Punch as vehicle for showcasing a, like a new spirit because that is something I've totally never thought of. And you do see him again, going back to the chronological aspect of the book, you see how the Criterion Milk Punch is kind of the bones of the recipes that came about, you know, even centuries later. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, so since we're on the topic of punches, right? Mm -hmm. Punches are big. Obviously, you've got this whole several hundred years before the cocktail officially comes about. And... Um, I wonder if you might um, talk about like punches relative to groups of people, right? Because I'm, I'm, and and maybe groups of people who want to get together and do things as a club, right? Because the, when you say <laughs> when you say punch, I'm thinking Philadelphia Fish House, um, and that leads to a whole other, you know, kind of. Um, rabbit hole of cocktails that arose at private clubs. So can you speak a little bit on this trend, maybe when it when the the period of history when it became most prevalent and what some of those private club cocktails were or meant? So there were there are a couple in the book. Actually, I think they're both from are they both from Pennsylvania? I'm trying to remember. No, one's from Virginia. It's obviously the Fish House Punch, which is which is Philadelphia. And then there's uh, the Coit Club Punch from from Virginia. And it yes, it's it's okay. These gentlemen's only clubs, you know, it's 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 what people would make to serve a crowd and to pick up heavy objects and throw them or do whatever it is that that you know <laughs> the pre the pre colonists were doing while they were hanging out in the case of the quake of the um the quake club they really were like playing a game where they had to throw like a heavy i forget what it was like some sort of giant rock or something and and whoever could throw it farthest really that was the that that was the game they would make punch and throw things <laughs> yeah, it, it uh, you know, it kind of uh, a second second reference reference to Wondrich, but it kind of makes me think of the the club the the, the term the sporting gentry or the or the, or the, the sports, sporting, yes. right, right. And so these 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 early sporting clubs and literally throwing rocks around and probably you know eventually there were firearms involved. I'm I'm sure probably, but yeah. So so we've got these early these early club punches and like I don't know what what do you think causes a bunch of people to come together and say, yeah, we need our own drink recipe. Like, where does that, where does that come from? It was probably, you know, it probably happened very organically. They wanted to serve something to a crowd. The best way to serve something to a crowd is to throw a bunch of stuff into a big bowl. Right. And they, um, it, probably, I mean, it's funny, it, you know, it's one of these things. Was there a definite re recipe? Probably not. Somebody wrote something down at some point, but really it was just luck. Oh, this tastes good. Oh, let's add a little bit of this. Oh, maybe today it needs more sweetener or maybe today it needs more acid, you know? So they were, they were probably playing around with whatever they had on hand. It was a great way to use stuff up, you know, and, and serve it to a crowd. And, and then nobody had to be serving 
cocktails, individual cocktails, they could just help themselves. I mean, the one thing that was probably problematic would be ice, right? Right. Yeah. No, I, I can imagine that that's the case. But I mean, ice was so different pre refrigeration. And you can imagine private clubs probably had the pooled resources to have an ice house. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So uh, yeah, I love the, I love the almost potluck approach. I was listening to another podcast recently about, um, you know, foodways in, in various states and, and the role of uh, church cookbooks in, oh, yeah. in preservation of certain culinary recipes. And this, to me, kind of reminds me of that. If really get a, get a group together and it's the best way to feed, or in this case, imbibe the most people at the same time. And then eventually you get somebody, I imagine you get somebody who's very good at it, right? There's probably yes. somebody right. who's fine. And then somebody comes along who's got a particular penchant for doing a great job with this. And then eventually one day they're, unhung over enough to, you know, maybe write it down while they're making it. And thus we have what we, what we know today. Now, eventually these private clubs got a little bit more sophisticated and the signature drinks got downsized to the regular cocktail format. So, I mean, to me, the, the Clover Club is one of these yeah. examples. Uh, are there any other, like, as we move forward, probably more toward like the 1800s, I'm guessing? Are there any Early other- Early 1900s, yeah. Yeah, what other club cocktails uh, are important to cocktail history? There's the Pegu Club cocktail, of course. But then again, that, that was an officer's, basically an officer's mess hall. You know, there's a, oh God, there's quite a few. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of all of them. That's a really good question. But oh, the the um, the Bird of Paradise Fizz is from oh, is from one of those clubs. And then yeah. were, there were some. I, I imagine, like to me, when I think of clubs, I also think of you know, sort of like not just social clubs, but also like military units. Like I'm thinking like yeah, the, yeah. like Fourth Regiment or the. Of course, we've got these traditions of you know, naval, naval officers drinking yes. X or Y and sailors drinking X or Y. So did you see any of that military stuff kind of, uh, um, infuse or inspire any of these recipes that people would be like, Oh, wow. I've heard of that cocktail. I totally had no clue that that was like a military thing. I mean, if the, if the story is true, then it would be Jennings Cox inventing the daiquiri. Oh, Wow. In, you know, in, and and in, in what respects on a on a military on a military base, yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, interesting. And I guess to me, like this is another one of those keys when I think about, like, think of the Sue's example that you gave earlier, right? Like, well, yeah. okay, there was a problem in that Sue's was just not being exported to places that weren't France. So if you wanted to go and make the drink that these two gentlemen invented, you almost had to get yourself there. And yep. I think that movement of people across place, you know, the military, Navy is like a really great thing that just sort of immediately and very rapidly solves for that. And then, of course, once they're back from that place, suddenly, like the recipe moves just as rapidly as people mm -hmm. do. So do you did you see like, are there any like technological or other types of innovations that kind of popped up at certain points in the progression of this book that you see as particularly meaningful, perhaps aside from like refrigeration? Well, air travel, you know, you wouldn't, we would not be talking about the Irish coffee if 
if air travel hadn't been invented and people needed to take a, a what they called a flying boat to Foyne's airport in in you know outside of Shannon, Ireland, and um, and then because of air travel, somebody w- had you know tried one there and decided that they were going to bring the recipe back to San Francisco, and voila, the Buena Vista and a cocktail that they make you know by the thousands every day. Hmm. Mm, that's true. So we've got travel as a big factor. Huge. Um, yeah. So what happens then? So this is, a, the, I love the example that you just gave with the Irish coffee, because what happens when you get a cocktail that has a sense of place, the Irish coffee seems to be very Irish to me, but suddenly it gets airlifted somewhere else. Right. Right. Like who owns it now? Do the Irish own the Irish coffee? Does the place own the Irish coffee? How does that, like, how does that, um, I guess this is a question about proliferation, right? So like how do these signature cocktails proliferate and is there a point in the proliferation where suddenly the signature cocktail becomes less tethered to the person, place or event and sort of does it get watered down? Or would you argue that that's a success in spreading its genetic prodigy all over the world? Does Is that when the signature cocktail wins or is that when the signature cocktail is maybe no longer a signature cocktail? Oh, I think it's always going to be a signature cocktail if you can still talk about its origin story. And even if you're drinking, let's say, a gold rush, in, I don't know, Hong Kong, you know, we're still gonna, we're gonna still talk about the fact that it, that it originated in New York City at Milk and Honey. Mm. Or, uh, you know, a lot of these modern cocktails, I mean, it's amazing to me how, how much they spread and how quickly also because of innovations like social media, and again, more travel and, and people just, you know, getting out in the world more. Um, um, oh, another really good example is Tommy's Margarita. You know, when Julio Bermejo started serving those in uh, San Francisco and people in the industry would stop by and, and try one, they were like, oh, this is a great way to, you know, to elevate the category of tequila because he's only using 100% agave and he's only using fresh juice. Yeah, and I think what you just referenced interestingly is is actually a a perfect example of the signature cocktail almost having a refiguring effect on the actual er cocktail right like the category of the margarita yes. in general because you know if if you you follow the 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 daisy sidecar family through history like there were there were these many different movements and how it looked and how it felt and the tommy's margarita is pretty much single-handedly responsible for the margaritas that you and i are drinking when we go out today which which is which is phenomenal so i think i think it's great to have these examples of of uh almost doing doing the opposite and having having this uh the uno reverse card of like ha gotcha now all margaritas are Tommy's margaritas. Yeah. Although it's funny. I mean, I had a conversation with Phil Ward not too long ago. He's, you know, I'm very lucky to have him as one of my local bartenders here at Long Island Bar. And, you know, sort of under his breath in the very Phil Ward way, he's like, that's not a margarita. You know, <laughs> he, 
there there are definitely purists who say that the Tommy's margarita, even though they, we call it a margarita, is not a margarita because it it doesn't belong to the Daisy family, as you were just discussing, because it doesn't have the liqueur in it. So it's pretty hilarious. I know. There are a lot of purists. There are a lot of agave purists who who will who want to call it anything but that. And and I and and to me that brings it right around back to like oh but that's that's his signature right so it's mm-hmm. like that's that's the fingerprint of that signature cocktail which I love so much yeah something that you mentioned which is attribution and mm-hmm. um, I guess like the the example of enjoying the gold rush you know somewhere yeah. across the world in Asia triggered this image because like what well, well you you might as a person native to that market, walk into the fancy cocktail bar, sit down, you'd open the menu, and what you might see is the gold rush, and then you'd see the ingredients, and then if it's following the conventions of many cocktail menus that you would see in major markets where you or I go to drink, it would say milk and honey, and comma, a year, and it might even say the name of the bartender who invented it. And I, you see this a ton on tiki menus. You see this sure. a ton uh, on uh, menus that are at the higher, higher ends. Um, so do you think, like, what do you think about this trend of, of attribution? Uh, does it, you know, like, because I've often, like, a great example would be tiki. It's not a format that I've been hugely, hugely familiar with, although I really enjoy going and, and enjoying the drinks when I have the opportunity, but sometimes I'll sit down, I'll open a menu such as that, and I'll see a drink that I'll see right uh, on one page, there will be like the, the Trader Vic's Mai Tai. Uh, and then on the other page, there will be a reference to somebody a couple of years ago in like Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I've heard of Trader Vic. I've never heard of this drink and I've never heard of this bartender how does this person deserve to get that kind of signature billing alongside? So I guess I have sort of a complicated thought about attribution of like, what is it like, at what point do you earn that attribution? But what are, what are your thoughts on, on the attribution and the way that that has kind of led to cross pollination of these signature drinks across the world? Well, I think just very much in the same way that it was important to show the chronology, again, we're going to speak about that of, of this book. I think it's really cool when you have a menu like that, that's, that's, you know, giving props to whoever came up with the cocktail, because you can see that you can see how things progressed, you know, the Trader Vic's Mai Tai, and then how somebody might have, you know, taken that template and ran with it and done something cool with it. Um, and I, and I think it's, and, and then people just want to know why is this so delicious and who do I have to thank for this? So mm. I think, I think that's good. Yeah. I, I'm I, all for I, it. I do too. Right. Like I was just, I, I also agree that attribution is like a hundred percent, like the best possible way to do things. And yet still, when I sit down, I have this, this weird contrary, like dark impulse that comes up against me. And I'm like, well, who does like, like, why does Jane Doe from Kansas city deserve to be next to Trader Vic? But I think the the secret answer to that is because the people who created this menu are really smart and because yeah. they they think so and they say so. And I think to me, I think that's something that's so great about the world that we live in right now that may have been, you know, a limitation in 
the 14, 15, 16, 1700s, um, that, that, that just that attribution comes so, so readily. Um, so are there any other aspects of, I guess, technology or, I mean, like, I'm, I, I, I'm hesitant to even bring up social media because it's just such an obvious influence, but are there any other, I guess, forces today that you see as really pushing signature cocktails and like essentially a force for good in today's signature cocktail landscape? I mean, you've, you've got activists like Chalky Tom who are working with various bars around the world to, you know, raise awareness to actually to the very thing we were just discussing. Let's, let's talk about, you know, credit where credit's due and uh, understand that maybe sometimes we've come to certain ingredients or certain preparation methods, or, you know, even something as complicated as tiki because we didn't fully respect the culture from which they came. You know, so, I mean, one of the things that was very important to me and, and <laughs> I, I probably drove them a little crazy with this was if we were going to feature a tiki drink in the book, we had to be, you know, very respectful in the way that it's presented and the vessel in which it's served, you know, no hula dancers, you know, no, no, um, Easter Island statues, you know, we really, you know, really something that's neutral and, and, um, and, and so that people can, so uh, people of all cultures can appreciate it too. Mm. So I think that's something that's happening finally in, in the drinks world, you know, where, where people are understanding that, that certain presentations are pretty problematic and they've got to stop. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think, you know, as we go through history, the the stuff in the past doesn't go away so really what we're in the business of you know as you know as having just put together a, a historical monograph is that we're layering things on top of one another and yeah. it reminds me of i don't know if you've ever read you know like a collection of um zen koans but there's certain ways of of presenting these uh, these pieces of text where it's like okay there's that what they've what they call the main case which would be like for us, like the cocktail recipe. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, in, in some collections, they've got somebody who comments on the top of that, who's like kind of gives the intro, which would be like the, all right, like, you know, so we've got the ingredients in the main case. And then maybe the intro would be like, oh, here's who created it. And here's where it was, where and when it was created. And then you've got something else at the end of it. That's like, they call it a capping verse, which is like, and boom. And now here, here's where I turn this on its head and complicate it and send you off to think about it while you meditate. And that could, you know, what, what you just mentioned about, you know, activists like Chalky Tom is like, oh, like, yes, all right, like, there may be this this time and this place and this set of ingredients that were very special and unique and almost frozen in time and could only have occurred there. And yet, as these signature cocktails continue pr- to evolve and proliferate and get put in front of people who might not have known them, we still have these these opportunities for meta commentary that I think actually mm-hmm. add to the richness and the surface area. Yeah. So, I absolutely agree with that. And I and I think it's really okay to present a cocktail from the past that you know that comes from a certain culture but then explain things were different then and this is how we would do it now. 
Sure, sure. And this is, and these are the ingredients that that we would serve, etc. Yeah. Well, let's turn our attention now to a segment of my listeners who are near and dear to my heart, our home bartenders. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of industry folks who listen, but also a ton of home bartenders who are really active on social media and on our Discord. And my question That's to fun. you is that le- take drawing from some of the learnings from your book. Is there anything that somebody who wanted to let's say let's say we've got two people. We've got a bartender who's maybe Let's say they've been bartending for a handful of years now. Maybe they're a head bartender at a place that is up and coming, but maybe not as famous as, you know, some of the places that we think of, like the Amorium Argos, the Death and Co's, and they want to create a signature cocktail for their bar. Mm-hmm. And let's say we've got this other person who's a home bartender who's been honing their uh, home mixology skills for the past half decade, and they read your book and they're like, hot damn. I want a signature cocktail for my home (laughs) bar. Like what might your advice be to those people based on the learnings from your book? I think there's several ways to do this. I mean, you can, I mean, one of the things too is, is there something about that environment that you want to tie into the drink that makes it special? Like say, like me, you have a giant black cat, you know, do you, <laughs> do you want to have, he's, he's now like sleeping in the background, but um, do you, do you want to have something about that drink that pays homage to that animal, you know, a pet or um, something about the, um, you know, geographical location of your house? Is it, is it in a historically interesting place in your hometown and do you want to do you want to pay tribute to that in some way maybe by using a local ingredient or even just kind of like doing something with the name and it can and it can be you know an offshoot of an existing drink it can be like a manhattan variation a martini variation you know a cool mai tai variation if you like but um clarified milk punch if you have the means <laughs> but but i think i think there's ways of doing this you know and this is and this is kind of how this happened around the world with various bars right like let's take the last word you know there's oh my word and word up and all of these very all these variations on it that you know make it a signature because it's it's that person or place's interpretation of of that um set of ingredients So naming is a really good one. I wonder about service method too, right? Because of course we've got the blue blazer cocktail featured (laughs) very prominently, Jerry Thomas's signature drink. Uh, Are there any examples of service method? Because, you know, if I were thinking, if I were a, an entrepreneurially minded bartender, I would be looking to do uh, something like the fajita sizzler of cocktails where it's like, mm, <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know I wanted that until somebody at the table next to me got the fajita sizzler and now that is all I can think about, right? So is there any sure. anything like that that jumps to mind? I mean, you got something going on with a bar cart, you're in. Uh, you know, if you're right, I mean, if somebody wheels a bar cart up to you, it almost doesn't matter what they do with it. That's just cool. So, but there, but then again, you've got the the two iconic martinis from London, from contemporary London, from the Duke's martini, and the whole ritual of you know every single bottle of gin or vodka is frozen. Right? It comes from a bar cart where where the where the gin itself or the vodka itself is frozen, and then they you know kind of they they 
pour in just a little bit of, of homemade of, of, or not homemade, but um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, house uh, vermouth. And then they just, you know, toss it over their shoulder and then, and then more stuff happens in the glass and the, and the beautiful, you know, um, Sicilian lemons that are used. And yeah. And then you've got the Connaught, which is just spectacular, <laughs> you know, and, and the entire, you know, service ritual of when they're adding the bitters and, and this whole trickle down business into the glass. It's just gorgeous to watch. It's a ballet really. Yeah, I love that. My friend actually it just enjoyed his his first um, Duke's Martini experience this past week, and so uh, those those uh, those uh, the Sicilian lemons are they like this big? Oh yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah. You know, they're like the size of your head. I mean, they're just <laughs> yeah, they're really really big. <laughs> That's brilliant. So yeah, so I like I like these. I think I think these are some of the some of those little writers I was thinking about before, right? Service method, um, some of the mm -hmm. theatricality of it. I mean, simply the act of tossing a cocktail instead of oh, yeah. um, instead of just mixing or shaking is is something to me that that could set something apart, right? And that does obviously, as we know from the science of making drinks, we do know that that has some implications on on the end product and the effect. Um, Anything so like so that's a, that's a, uh, those are some great suggestions for home bars. What about more on the professional side of things? What if what if somebody is like, ah man, there's no way I can uh, fit all of my gin bottles in the freezer. There's no way my bar manager is going to let me afford a bar cart. Are there any other things that people can do that might be more like riffs on a classic? that might set them apart like i'm like using using local ingredients is one place where my head goes but to sure. me then i naturally go to craft right like if we're thinking spirits i naturally go to like craft spirits and mm -hmm. my concern there is that they, they might not be around in a couple of years because you know like it there's there's a difference between laird's applejack which is a signature ingredient in a number of of cocktails and you know perhaps a really cool local apple brandy producer that you might use but then mm -hmm. that might succumb to certain economic forces yeah. how how would you how would you think about that i mean you know the whole rule of smoke them if you got them right i mean if <laughs> if you can if you can use that local ingredient and they're still producing that's that you know it's it's a great way to support the community so I, I would say do that whenever you can, if, if there's a great product and hopefully they, they get to stick around. Um, but yeah, I mean, on a, on a smaller scale, I mean, one, actually one thing that you can, that you can get for your bar that's really nice is an ice stamp. Ooh. You know, it's not a super expensive thing to do. And, and then, you know, it, it's, and it's not that hard to execute. And then you've got all these drinks that have this little, this cool little pattern in them, you know, and, and that's just, that's just a really nice thing. And people remember that. I mean, that, I remember when I first saw that at Drink Kong in Rome, that was, and that just blew my mind. The, you know, the cool Kong logo right in the, right in the glass. Yeah. And what I love about that, what I love about that piece of advice is that you can, of course, there are various levels. You can go really fancy if you're a big bar or if you're a home bartender, you can simply invest in one custom piece that you yep. can heat up with a culinary blowtorch and stamp on the top of a single two by two inch cube. And, and uh, you know, that that works. And I Easy mean, enough. think about the specialness. The, uh, to me, that's 
how simple is that in terms of the specialness of place, right? Like imagine, imagine that you just go over to a friend's house and you know that friend makes some good drinks. So you're excited. Oh, you know, you and your partner are on the way over. You're like, ah, Friday night going to visit X and Y. I bet we're going to have a couple of good cocktails. And then they break out the ice stamp. Right? How cool is that? (laughs) Come on. That is such a winner right there. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So Amanda, is there anything that I've totally overlooked about the book that you want to make sure you point out before we transition into some lightning round questions here? Goodness, I can't think of anything. We covered quite a lot of ground, didn't we? We traveled we traveled a lot of different countries and we had different kinds of drinks and we even got a little political there for a second. So a bit, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. Um yeah. well Of course, we're going to have links over on the show notes page to uh, where folks can pick up this book. I mean, it is it is out out as of our recording here on October 5th, right? It is. Yeah, it's pub day. Congratulations. Uh, Well, thank you for spending some of some of that big day with me here. And uh, I think with that, we'll uh, we'll head over to the lightning round. So question number one. What's a signature cocktail in your book that you think is perhaps criminally overlooked? The 20th century. Yes. Tell us about the 20th century cocktail because I'm inclined to agree. I love that drink. You hardly ever see it anymore. Um, I mean, the way it's described in the book is the Corpse Reviver number two with um, creme de cacao instead of the orange. And man, is it delicious. It's just, it's just, it's one of those things that's the sum of its parts. Um, so what it's lemon, uh, gin, quina lile, creme de cacao, I forget what else. And did, does the Corpse Reviver have a little bit of anise in it? No. No. Oh yeah, the Corpse that's right. The Corpse Reviver has a little bit of, um, of absence, yeah. yeah. So does the 20th, I think the 20th century probably omits. No, yeah, there's no absence yeah. in, the, yeah. in the 20th century. And what was, did that have something to do with train travel or, mm-hmm. yeah, so how did that arise? It's named for the for the 20th century train, which um, operated in the United States cross country from uh, the early 1900s until the 1960s. And it was an incredibly elegant way to travel you know it was exactly what your what your mind is picturing the the beautiful furniture and you know people waited on hand and foot and the and the grand dining car and the coolest thing about the dining car is um you know by day you could have your breakfast in there and it was like a cozy little place to you know sit and have coffee and and watch the scenery go by and at night it was a nightclub it was you know, club century. I mean, how cool is that? So <laughs> that's amazing. And- I would, I, that is, and just to me, you know, something that represents that the, the drink actually, um, I don't think the drink was invented until the, the 1930s. So the, the train had already been operating nearly two decades, I think by the time that it had its own signature drink. And what a strange cocktail to be invented in the thirties, Right, right. Because creme de cacao, the French vermouth, and uh, and I mean gin we had okay, mm-hmm. but like but lemons maybe a little harder to come by at that time. 
Very um, good point. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and I mean, gin and chocolate. Yeah. A weird thought, perhaps, but strangely, I think juniper and cacao have an interesting little back and forth, especially when you, when you, you know, incorporate some of that sweetness there. So, uh, 20th century cocktail, fantastic answer. Um, next question. You're stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life. Classic scenario, no prospect of rescue. And you can interpret this strictly, right? The rule, the rules of this could be strict where you have to survive or they could be a little bit less strict and it's just a, you know, perhaps a, a, a philosophical desert island. But you get, you get to take one bottle of anything, really. It can be a spirit, a ferment, a liqueur. Uh, and then you get to have one cocktail that either you have the ingredients for and can be made at all times, or again, if you want to be lazy and you can just have it on draft. Um, so what's, what's your bottle and what's your desert Island cocktail? I, you know, when I was in my twenties, I didn't want to leave New York city because of lack of access to bagels. <laughs> and now I would say I would, I would hate to leave civilization because of lack of access to Manhattans. Mm. What's your, like, what's your dream Manhattan? I mean, I'm so I'm going to be controversial here. I prefer a bourbon Manhattan over a rye Manhattan. (laughs) I mean, I love rye. I love rye. I love my rye Manhattans, but I think, I think I prefer slightly the the taste of, of bourbon in my mind. So I would need a bottle of bourbon with me. I think I would, I would have to have a bottle of bourbon with me on a desert island. Okay. And now does the bourbon preference have some logical consequences in your choice of garnishes and or vermouths? If you're stuck on a desert island, really, you can garnish with anything, right? I mean, if you can find a pineapple, (laughs) (laughs) why not? Why does it have to be a cherry or an orange? It doesn't. (laughs) Right, right. But here in civilization, let's say, let's say you're just going out to the bar and you're ordering, you know, you, you can um, build a bear, your perfect Manhattan here in civilization. Yeah. Does that, does the bourbon choice lead you to certain vermouths or certain garnishes? Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll just talk about the garnish thing. For me, I'm I'm cherry. I'm okay. cherry all the way. I mean, as as people probably know, I'm I and I make a big I make a big deal of this when the farmers market locally finally has the sour cherries from New York State. I make batches and batches and batches of cocktail cherries using different spirits and different recipes. That's awesome. my thing. Awesome. So, Yes. I love it, and I love I love to like. Isn't it isn't it somewhat gratifying when you go into the cupboard? after a while, after they've sat and you open and suddenly the, the cherries are pale and all of the, all the goodness is like extracted into all the, the juice. I mean, to me, like seeing those chairs and be like, ah, good, you've done your work. There's something gratifying. That's interesting. You know, that doesn't happen with, I, I get those sour cherries from New York state mm. and they retain their color, but they really? still, but there's still some extraction. Sure. I mean, and so the, the liquid is this beautiful, like, you know, hubba hubba electric pink, but then it's, but the cherry itself still retains that color. It's really beautiful. Well, it serves me right for sourcing those lazy Michigan cherries. <laughs> well, uh, I wonder, are you using sweet ones or sour ones? I use sour. Uh, I think they're a Montmorency. Um, okay. Yeah. It's just yeah. the variety. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, next question. If you could have a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, right now. Who would it be? Where would you go? What would you have? Just kind of paint us a picture. So, you know, 
there are all these famous people I wish I could have had a drink with, especially back when they were drinking and some of them just don't drink anymore. But, you know, David Bowie, of course, or, or, um, I mean, Dorothy Parker at the beginning of the evening, Peter O'Toole at the beginning of the evening, you know, Richard Burton at the beginning of the evening, somebody like that. But really I thought about this and you know, my answer would be to, um, to have a drink at the bar on the 20th century with a tall, handsome stranger and have one of those conversations that you'd want to write a play about. Mm, fantastic. That's, that's what I want from the past. I want, I want the opportunity to go back and experience those things that we really can't do anymore or to go to the Stork Club in New York City, which I, which I missed. So I, I feel like I feel like in your hands, the, uh, the holodeck on the Star Trek Enterprise would be a really dangerous tool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, and and what an what an answer for somebody who wrote a book about the importance largely of place on on cocktails. So fantastic. Um, do you have any unusual or controversial views in the spirits and cocktail world? Oh right, I was supposed to think about this question. What's my? I think my controversial view is that the Jack Rose and 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 the twentieth century are delicious. I mean, I, I I think I I think it's just that I I like certain things maybe that some other people don't. Yeah, and well, and it seems like you in it seems like you also just case in point, the brandy cherries have have a have a vested interest in in great ingredients too. So you know, Jack, yes. I feel like the Jack Rose is made or broke upon the. Grenadine, the grenadine, right. or the or the thing that actually I do make them. So I don't use grenadine. I I use I use the the cherry juice from from my cocktail cherries when I make a Jack Rose at home. Perfect, and and what a what a perfect riff too, right? Because apple brandy, cherry brandy, like there's you know, come on, come on now, pretty good. Well, Amanda, uh, we're coming up on time here. I want to thank you for, of course chatting here with me, but also the massive amount of work that it took to put together <laughs> alongside your uh, your team who held down the, the regional uh, research, uh, this book. What is it? Where can we buy it? And uh, where can we get in touch with you digitally? Okay. So it's Signature Cocktails. There we go. There she is. Um, and you can buy it wherever books are sold right now. Um, and getting in touch with the, me digitally, you can follow me at Wine and Shine, W-I-N-E-N-S-H-I-N-E, um, on Instagram and threads. And yeah, I think I'm probably going to get rid of that other thing pretty soon. But yeah, let's say Instagram and threads. Beautiful. <laughs> well, Amanda, congratulations on uh, what I think is a very valuable addition to the cocktail canon. And I don't say that very often about the oh, dozens of books that, that come across my inbox. Um, so Congrats on uh, on passing through the filter and, and putting something actually, you know, useful out into the world and, and beautiful with the photography um, in there, courtesy of your team in London. And thank you Amazing. most importantly for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. 
The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, signature cocktail insights courtesy of Amanda Schuster, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a publication of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, copyright 2023.